You're listening to Two Sons of Tatooine. If there's a bright center to the universe, you're listening to the podcast that it's farthest from. And here are your hosts, Jonathan and Nathan. All right, and welcome to the 16th episode of Two Sons of Tatooine. My name is Jonathan Cohn. I am one of your hosts. Uh, Nathan is out today. Um, uh, he really wanted to be able to read this, but he has a busy schedule. Um, but as always with our book reviews, I am joined by Mike Self. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Jonathan. You need to give Nathan a crash course in how to maintain your reading despite a busy schedule. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he and he really he legitimately really wanted to join us on this, and he was like, "I'm gonna go buy the book," and it's just short stories, so it's short. And I was like, "Yeah," and then just stuff happened, and you know, maybe he said maybe next time. Uh, so we really want to get him back. But uh, the f- before we talk about our topic for today, um, which is a really good topic, we're going to uh, talk about some news. Um, since we last had a book episode, the Mandalorian novel that was going to be written by Adam Christopher has been pushed back to November of 2021. That's an 11th month push from this December to next November. I don't think I've ever seen a book pushed like that before. Um, it's quite shocking. We also have uh, the news that the third book in the Alphabet Squadron trilogy, Victory's Price, is set to come out in March, um, which is really soon considering that the first book, Alphabet Squadron, came out in June of 2019, and the second book, Shadowfall, came out in June of 2020. So it's only going to be about a nine or ten month uh, difference instead of a full year difference between release, which would be nice. And what do you you think about those Alphabet Squadron books? Have you have you really enjoyed the first two? I enjoyed them. They are not my favorites and they're not really my cup of tea in design. Like pilots, it's not like a pilot story is not what I'm looking for in my Star Wars. Um, which is kind of bad because that's Star Wars, but it's just it's not my cup of tea. But it's still fun and it's still well written and it's still interesting. Um, there's a lot of stylistic choices I'm not I'm not a huge fan of, um, but it's still a good series. I give them all positive reviews so far. And then um, the other news is that uh, uh, the Clone Wars: Stories of Light and Dark is set to release. As we're releasing this episode, it releases the Tuesday after. And uh, I'm really excited because I love the Clone Wars TV show. And this is some of them. Some of the short stories are essentially um, like novelization of an individual episode. And some of them are brand new. Um, And they were able to get the actual voice actors who do the voices in the show to come back and do the audiobook. Um, which I think is really cool. I love I love it when they do that. They got they had a book on Padme, and they got the gal that plays Padme in the show, and they nice. did the same for Ahsoka. Um, so I, I always love it when they're able to do that. shows shows the real fandom. So of these three projects, you have the Mandalorian novel news, you have the Victory's Price news for Alphabet Squadron, and the Stories of Light and Dark from Clone Wars. Which of these, Mike, do you find? Uh, most interesting, and which book are you looking forward to most? Well, I think you you said it. Um, you know, the pushback of eleven months for the uh, Mandalorian novel is um, surprising. Do we? Uh, do we? What are the details on that? Do you know why that got pushed back? No. 
They just said, you know, they, they, they've had several pushbacks. They pushed back the High Republic about six months. Um, and they pushed back um, uh, the Thrawn uh, Ascendancy book, even though they just, just pushed it up a month. They had pushed it back four months and then pushed it up one month. Um, so that kept changing. So they, everyone's assuming it's because of COVID reasons, but I can't imagine delaying it 11 months for that. I think it's that he had a plan, the author and the editors to tell a story. And then they found out that season three is going to have something to do with that story. And so they need to change some things and wait to release it until season three comes out. So that's my guess. Gotcha. I am also fairly excited about the Clone Wars, uh, the light and dark. I, I was not as into the TV show, uh, as, as yourself and many other Star Wars fans, but that's, that's going to be neat. Are you, are you pumped about that? Yeah, I am. Um, the, the, the only thing that gives me hesitance is it is a published as a middle grade and they said they're not entirely writing it for a younger audience, but middle grade books tend not to have, um, quite the impact that young adults or adult books do for me. So I'm hesitant on that. Um, so, uh, but I am excited to read it. I have a copy on order. Um, so I, I'm excited for that, but the book I'm most excited for is probably the Mandalorian novel, even though I have to wait a year and change now. Well, also correct me if I'm wrong, Adam Christopher, he wrote one of these 40 short stories by 40 different authors for, from a certain point of view for A New Hope, did he not? He did. Yes. Um, we haven't, we haven't gotten to that one yet, but it is, it is on the list. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the people... Oh, that is a great segue. Um, so I, you're learning. I like it. Uh, so I guess based off that, Mike, do you want to introduce our topic for the day? Oh, sure. We, um, it's, it's super exciting. It's, um, having, you know, this, and I guess many of your listeners may know this as well, but a new hope is my favorite of all the Star Wars films. And what we have and what we've done, we're reviewing today is um, it's a collection of short stories, 40 short stories um, by 40 different authors. Uh, came out in, 19, in 2017. It was celebrating 40 years of Star Wars, but it basically takes the events that we see happen in A New Hope and retells them from the perspective of a minor character that you might not have even noticed uh, when you were watching the movie. It's a very interesting concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and one question that I had for you before we dive in, because we today we're going to be breaking down the first eight. Um, but one question that I did have for you, I'm, I'm curious to know if, if you know the answer to this, is you have 40 authors and you have 40 stories. The Whoever put this project together, did they assign you know, these characters and these stories to certain authors, or did they just tell the authors what they wanted and then allow them to choose... You know the character that they that they wanted to choose. Well, um, I actually—that's a good question. I actually listened to uh, the Del Rey editors uh, talking on a panel, and they basically said that when they had the idea, the editors did. They said they called it their best worst idea ever, um, uh, because it's a it is a bad idea that turned out well. Um, what they did was they basically created a spreadsheet and they said, okay. We don't want to just tell the authors you have to do this, but they didn't want authors writing about the same things or stepping on each other's toes. So they basically started talking with them and saying, 
tell us which ones you're interested in, and then we'll figure out if that person is able to, if you're able to do that person, or if you need to move it around or, you know, cause they, the stories are all sequentially. So it's, you can't have, um, stories out of order, which they had to do. And then they had to figure out, you know, okay, we can't have too many Imperial stories or too many canteen up stories or things like that. Um, so they had to, to manage it a little, but I do know talking with John Jackson Miller that he already knew going in what he wanted to do and they instantly liked it and he got to pitch certain things in the story, which we'll talk about. And they were very receptive to it. And they said, as long as it fits within certain parameters, you can do that. Um, and luckily it fit within the parameters. Uh, so, uh, that's basically how they set everything up. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> who doesn't love a good ranking so these first eight we've, we've ranked them in order of how much we enjoyed them because that's the thing when you've got 40 short stories by 40 different authors you're bound to come across one or two and go you know what I never really wondered you know what I never wondered about the perspective of that particular character or you know this one doesn't really interest me so maybe they're not going to be all 40 you know um you know, 40 home runs, so to speak, but yeah. they're all interesting in their own way, but these first eight, we have ranked one through eight, I've seen your list, you've seen mine, they're not, uh, certainly not identical, um, in some cases not even similar, so we have some <laughs> different and varying opinions on these, but we're going to go through them, you know, sequentially, the way the way they start, do you want to you jump in and, and kick us off? Yeah, first thing I'll do is I will um, just read the names of the short stories um, uh, and who they're by, so we're talking about Ramus by Gary Whitta, The Bucket, by Christy Golden, The Sith of Data Work, by Ken Liu, Stories in the Sand, by Griffin McElroy, Rearin, or how, how do you pronounce that one? Uh, yeah, close to that. Rearin, yeah. Rearin, whatever, by uh, Saba Tahir, uh, The Red One, by Ray Carson, Rights, by John Jackson Miller, and Master and Apprentice, by Claudia Gray. For those of you keeping score, Master and Apprentice is also the name of a novel by the same author. So that's not confusing at all. Um, An excellent novel by the same author, author, by the way. One that we have reviewed on this very podcast. Ah, you beat me to it. Darn it, Mike, I was setting myself up. But uh, (laughs) anyway, so um, the first short story we will talk about is Ramus by Gary Witter. It talks about... Captain Ramus Antilles, who is the captain of the Tanta V4 during the time of A New Hope and Rogue One. And the story bridges the two events, um, which are really, really back-to-back. Like, in the movies, we knew they were back-to-back, but when you read it here, it's, like, very short. He doesn't even have time to completely write a note to his family to let them know what's happened to him. Uh, So... Mike, I will let you start off. Tell me what you thought of this one and what stood out to you. Well, I ranked this one number one uh, on my list. Um, I've got it as my favorite of these first eight that we read, and uh, it really made me it really made me want to go back and, and, and watch Rogue One again. Um, and of course, I'll, it doesn't take much to make me want to go watch A New Hope again. I'm always in the mood yeah. to watch that. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that those two are such excellent films, and then, like you said, this is a bridge between the two of those. Uh, and it's a short bridge, right? Because there's not much space to cover between the events that end Rogue One and the events that start A New Hope. Mm-hmm. It's basically, it goes right from one to the other. So there's, 
there's, you know, this kind of overlays uh, on those two. And I thought it was, I thought Gary Witta did an excellent job um, with with the story. Um, question, is Ramos Antilles uh, related to Wedge Antilles? I don't know. I'd have to look that up. But I can say that I do know that Antilles is a common um, uh, name, not just in the Star Wars universe, but in both Alderaan and in Corellia. But Ramus Antilles is from Alderaan, whereas Wedge Antilles is from Corellia. So it's entirely possible there's no relation. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll tell you what I liked about it. I liked, um, it, and by the way, if you've seen Rogue One, or if, if, well, yeah, if you've seen Rogue One and you see the, um, the, uh, rebellion officer, you know, come up to Princess Leia and, and hand her, uh, the Death Star plans and say, what is it they've sent us? And then, of course, she responds with hope. Uh, that officer who hands her that in the, in, in, in the film Rogue One at the very end there is Remus Antilles. Remus Antilles, he's the, he's the captain of the ship. Um, and uh, the word hope, obviously, is mentioned over and over and over again in this short story. Um, that's, that's kind of a consistent theme throughout, which makes sense because it's a consistent theme there at the end of Rogue One and then, of course, all throughout the movie, A New Hope. Um, I love, I, I, guess, I guess primarily what it is, is I love the, that sequence of events that takes place um, from the Battle of Scarif all the way to uh, Vader and the Imperial troops boarding Leia's ship, the consular ship. That's just such a great, you know, such great action from the end of Rogue One to the beginning of A New Hope, and this sort of um, is laid right on top of that and gives you the perspective of the captain of the ship um, and kind of what he's seeing. I love the account too. There's another officer. Uh, it's not it's not Antilles himself, but it's another officer who gives um, his account of what he saw uh, when Vader, um, you know, basically fought his way through, well, you know, dozens of, of rebel troops in an attempt to get the plans back and you know killed you know so many of them and. He kind of describes he describes him as uh, a death angel uh, is, is his mm-hmm. description of, of Vader. And he's clearly shaken by the events that he's seen, and um, it's just such a you know again there's that sense of foreboding that seems to surround you know Vader and, and who he is and what his presence means to the rebels and um, yeah so I, so much about it that that I uh, that I really really enjoy. I know you've got it ranked a little further down down your list, and that doesn't mean that you necessarily didn't didn't like it tell me tell me what you um what you thought of uh, of Aramis by Gary Witta I really liked it um uh it's number five out of eight for me but that's not because there's stuff in it I don't like it's just that I think that the other certain other stories have more impact they have more uh, importance to the world building I guess um I'm not a huge world builder normally like i like like certain people say uh, i I read fantasy sci-fi books because the magic system or because of the science or because the characters or because of the plot or the world building or different things i read for character but when you have a short story collection like this it's very hard to develop character so therefore what i'm interested in is world building and that's what did you make me think about this universe already? How did you change my perceptions of things? For instance, change my perceptions of um, what happens in the short story. And so I did like that, how quick the turnaround is. Um, I did feel um, 
you know, so bad for him. I, I really like you talk about hope. He has hope for the galaxy, but he has almost no hope for himself and his crew. And I love that he just knows, yeah, we're not going to make the out of this alive. He runs through all the contingencies, but yeah, this the, Vader's going to find us. They, 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 they know what we're, what, what we're doing. And it's also, it makes you think about how when he says this is a consular ship, we're on a diplomatic mission. He's bald faced lying to Vader because Vader just saw their ship leave with the plans. So, um, that completely changes the, uh, the, and then Leia at the same time, she, she lies to Vader and like, he, I, I see why he's so adamant about it. Cause he's like, I just saw your ship leave the battle. Just saw it. Um, right. uh, yeah. And, and Achilles is the one that's a famous scene from when you talk about, you know, the movie, the new hope that came out in 1977 and you know, people's first impressions of the villain, Darth Vader, and it's that it's that opening scene, and it's it's him, you know, interrogating, for lack of a better word, the the, the rebel officer, um, you know, lifting him off his feet with one hand, and literally choking the life out out of him, and and killing him right there, and that that's that's Ramus Antilles, that's him, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's the captain of the ship, and you you also learn, um, so it is. You're right, it is that he, the moment he knows they're being pursued by Vader, the moment he learns that the Empire. Has not has basically issued a, a a stop and search order on all um, Corellian corvettes, you know, because it was a fairly common model. But now they're you know they're stopping and you know, they were hoping to hide like a needle in a haystack, and then they learned that the Empire is willing to tear the entire haystack apart to find them. So they realized, okay, what we've got here, these plans are obviously crucially important, and they really want them back because they they sent they sent Vader to get these plans back. So he realizes, you know, our hyperdrive's busted. It's not doing great. We're probably not going to make it to Tatooine. And then there's that moment where they almost get there, um, and he, he begins to hold out just a little bit of hope that they're actually going to make it. And then he feels the pull of the tractor beam um, of the Devastator, you know, hauling them in, mm-hmm. and those are going to be boarded. Uh, and you're right, it is, you know, he doesn't really harbor much or hold out much hope for himself or his crew, but he does for the galaxy. In fact, the last moment there, um, just to read the last couple of lines of the short story, um, he knows that you know that Leia. Um, he said he hoped that somehow Leia knew of a way out, even from this. Um, he hoped that it would empower them. These plans would empower them to destroy that hateful weapon, to turn the tide of war, to rally more systems to their cause, to allow a galaxy once again to breathe free. In his final moment, he hoped, and that's kind of how it ends. And that's um, you know, and you also think about all the you know, it kind of puts you in mind. It makes you think about the. The rebels who didn't make it off of Scarif, uh, you know, they made the, the you know the sacrifice there on Scarif to, to get the plans out, and you know, I, I got to think that was that their their final thoughts were probably along similar lines. Yeah, it is, and um, I, I love the the realization when he first hears, "What have you done with the plans?" And in the in the in the movie, his eyes go really um, uh, big, and you think it's because he's being choked, but. You also realize now, no, it's because he's just realizing, oh, that's what they sent us. Right. Um, I loved that that realization. Um, the last thing I'll say about it is that because it's written by Gary Whitta, who literally was one of the co-writers of Rogue One, it really shows like the Lucasfilm is willing to put some synergy in their products or pr- projects, and they're willing to like let the 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 film writers 
work with the um, book writers in, in new ways. And Gary Whitta also did the comic adaptation of The Last Jedi, so he's not afraid to dip into other mediums. Um, and I think that's really important. It also reminds me, everyone's always clamoring for a Solo 2, and I'm thinking, overall, people seem to like Rogue One better than Solo. Why aren't they claim- clamoring for a Rogue 2? And I'm like, oh, because that would just be a new hope. Um, <laughs> yeah, we got, we got a Rogue 2. Uh, yeah. Way back then. So. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good... Let's move on to the next uh, short story. Um, this one is called The Bucket. It is written by Christy Golden, who Star Wars fans will know from Dark Disciple, Battlefront 2, Inferno Squad, um, the fa- three books in the Fate of the Jedi series. She's also written short stories for Star Wars. She's also written novels for uh, Star Trek, uh, World of Warcraft, Ravenloft, um, D&D, all this types of stuff. And she's the winner of the Scribe Award uh, the Lifetime Scribe Award for Media Tie-In Fiction. So she is she is an impressive writer. She wrote um, The Bucket, which is told from TK4601's point of view. And let me tell you, Mike, having to say that over and over is really... I understand why they gave Finn Finn instead of 2187, because that's going to get real old real quick. Um, yeah, that gets, uh, that gets a little clunky in, in, in conversation. What did uh, what did you think of this uh, short story? Well, I got it ranked number six on my list out of eight. But uh, like you, there was really only one or you know a couple of these that, that just didn't do it for me. That'll be kind of down toward the bottom. I liked this one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know you mentioned Finn, and that's interesting because what was part of the thing that was so intriguing about his character was we kind of got we got finally got kind of a, the viewpoint of a stormtrooper. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, they had always been these nameless, faceless, um, you know, imperial troops down through the, the ages of Star Wars. And we never really, you know, we, we knew that Luke and Han had, had impersonated stormtroopers in, in A New Hope uh, to infiltrate the Death Star. But as far as actually getting and we, we knew from some of the um, from the prequels, we kind of knew where the stormtroopers came from and their origin. But as far as getting some perspective from one of them. We never really got any, and that was what was so cool about Finn. He was an ex-stormtrooper. We kind of got to see inside the bucket, if you will, and Mm -hmm. in this story, we get more of the same. We get to see inside the bucket for um, TK4601. I did find it interesting. You know, he's the one who stuns Leia, right? Um, Yeah. They're searching the ship. You know, they're searching the ship for passengers with orders to kill the crew but, but keep the passengers alive. You remember Vader's famous command, tear the ship apart till you found those plans and bring me the passengers. I want them alive. So now they're looking for the passengers and they're, they're, they're trying to find them. And it's like um, they have their weapons set on stun, mm-hmm. okay? And, and it's, it's TK-4601. His commanding officer, Stormtrooper, is, is the one that Leia shoots and kills and then he stuns Leia. Um, I thought it was interesting that uh, what he perceives and what he sees, his perspective of Leia, I thought was very cool. Mm-hmm. That she's so physically small, right? You, you know, she's. Um, they also, it's pretty clear they don't yet know the level of her involvement with the rebellion. <laughs> she's leading the rebellion. Which they've done a pretty good job. Of, you know, she and the rebels have done a pretty decent job of of subterfuge so far. They don't really know the level mm-hmm. of her involvement, but he kind of expected her to be, I guess, more physically imposing, to look more like a warrior. Um, you know, than she did. She's very small and. He expected to see, to see Rosie the Riveter. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's, 
very tiny and very beautiful and very frail looking and um, and then of course all those but even he notices right away that there's more to her than meets the eye he notices it a little too late and, and it costs the life of, of his commanding officer there but her perspective that he perceives on what she thinks of them as stormtroopers and he in his mind he's thinking she only he sees he, he witnesses and he sees hate and he says she only sees us as you know as, as faceless um, uh, tools of the empire and you know he says I'm going to show her that there's there's really a person inside this bucket and I just I had to wonder later on you know Leia is one of the first ones to openly welcome and embrace Finn uh, as a former stormtrooper and bring him in and bring him aboard and, and, and welcome him, him in as part of the uh, the resistance and I just wonder if the seeds of that acceptance were not planted you know way back when when because there's, there's a part of this story where where the um, TK-4601 takes off his helmet. But he doesn't go with them to take her to Vader. He has to be reassigned to another you know, active duty squad um, and then takes off his helmet. He has decided in that moment that he, he's okay with killing rebels, but he doesn't want to do it you know, necessarily face-to-face. He would rather do it, you know, whether it's, you know, I don't know, shooting them from a ship from a distance or what have you, and mm-hmm. takes off his helmet in order to show her that, hey, there's, you know, there's a person inside this this bucket so to speak and there's even an exchange where she kind of nods you know sort of acknowledgement in his direction i, I don't know what, what, what did you think of this one i know i think you may have liked it a little more you ranked it a little higher i think than i did no i had i have it at number six as well um okay, so i enjoyed it um uh, i think that it just doesn't add too much to the world building um one thing it does is it makes you emphasize empathize with the empire which is great but there's a lot of books and a lot of shows and stuff that makes you empathize with the Empire now. So you have to have something that's really good. And I like that this, the bucket, isn't just um, uh, isn't just a literal talking about the helmet. But it's also the, the deeper meaning of the short story is, as you were saying, him taking it off. And um, uh, her, he, her seeing his face. I had not thought about the, uh, the Finn connection. Uh, that is an interesting... Uh, I I do like thinking that maybe that had an effect, though I think Leia's always been more um, uh, more empathetic to people than you know you'd expect. She's always even in other books that she's in now, she always is trying to help people, and um, I think that it's interesting how he's thinking that maybe if the rebellion, I don't agree with their with their logic. I don't agree with all the empire's logic, but maybe if they realize that they're killing people on both sides, maybe they'll come to their senses and do something peacefully, come up, come, come to a compromise somehow, because it's kind of like we tend to forget that when we send soldiers away, there's individuals there. It's not just an army that we're sending. Um, so I thought that was, that was good. Um, it's also cool to learn, by the way, this guy was a member of kind of like an elite fighting force known as Vader's fist. Well, here's here's what's really interesting about that. So, originally we knew that Vader had an elite group, but it wasn't really named or anything. And then um, there's this fan group called the Five O First Legion, which is people who dress up as stormtroopers and other things, and they get to go out and um, they go to charity events and other things. And now the Five O First got to be in the Mandalorian. They got to be some of the stormtroopers in the last episode. But what was really cool about it is that Timothy Zahn 
actually made the 501st Legion canon in his books, both in the EU timeline and in the canon timeline. He made it so that the fi- Vader's fist, his personal legion, was known as the 501st, um, uh, which just made fans everywhere go, oh, we're canon, uh, which is just really cool. So, yeah, I did. I did like that, that he was part of that elite force. Um, uh, I'd really like to see their perspective of when they're literally boarding the ship and they're like, Oh, they're shooting at us. And then, and then, um, so, and I think it was, it's a later short story where there's a comment made about, if it's in the next short story, there's a comment made about stormtroopers having bad aim, uh, which I, I loved that. It's, it's, it's in, it's in the next one, which is a good, uh, transition to the Sith of data work. We differ on this though. It's not a huge problem, but, I love the Sith of Data work. I thought it was hilarious. I was yeah. laughing throughout um, because part of the part of the thing is you have to after Rogue One came out and the uh, honest trailers made fun of it. They said and uh, a guy takes a data file to one guy and that other guy turns it into a different data file who sends it to um, these people letting them know that they have to go steal a data file from this big bank and then ship that to a starship. And then they have to download that onto a disc and then hand that disc to princess Leia. And they're like, whoever, whoever did this like data files or something like that. Um, and it just, so uh, that's funny. And then this comes out and it's, it's all about paper pushing and bureaucracies. And it reminds you how inefficient government can be. Um, uh, and even the military side of government, um, which even conservatives like me, like having, you can realize that there's even inefficiencies in the bureaucracies there. And he's like, you have to fill out this little paperwork here and this here. And I always wondered what happened to that guy who said, uh, hold your fire. Uh, because it's like, what are you stupid? It doesn't matter. Just shoot it out of the sky. It doesn't matter. There's no life forms. Don't you know about droids? And, uh, and it was interesting hearing that the reasoning was because of the kill ratio and how that affects your movement upward and how he was able to pin it on other, the problem on other people and make it look like he was innocent and, oh, well, you know, they were cleaning my windows, so I can't do that. Um, so it's just, it's just funny. And then the the guy, it's told in a first person perspective of the guy he's talking to. And the guy just keeps like, you did it. It's kind of like, it's like you click the Apple terms of service, but you never actually read the Apple terms of service. The guy's like, you said, you said you, you knew what this paperwork was. And he's like, that's just, I was just trying to get through it. <laughs> so it's like this, it's, it's in universe, but it's also very meta, the humor. Um, this was, I could see this one, now that I think about it, I could see this one played out as a, as, as a comedy sketch. Yeah, sketch. exactly. Of some kind. Yeah, it would, it, would, it would be pretty funny. Um, where did you rank it? You had it pretty high. I had it on as number th- uh, th- four for me. Okay. Um, it's, not, it's not the best, but I, I seriously enjoyed it. Before I hear from you, I did want to point out that the, it is written by Ken Liu, who has only one major Star Wars project under his belt. He wrote The Legends of Luke Skywalker, which, full disclosure, is my least favorite canon or legends book. I put that at one star. I did not like that book at all. I mm, I did not like the book, but that's a, a time for a difference. So, even though I 
don't like that book, and I kind of like this short story. I've heard Ken Liu talk, and he is a fun... He's pretty young. He's probably in his 30s, and he's just a sweet, fun guy, and he's just a fan. And he also uh, translates, because he's... Um, uh, he's originally Chinese, moved to America, and he translates the famous Chinese author's works into English. Um, uh, that's what he does when he's not, and he also, and his actual work is like data programming stuff. So this short story was right up his alley. Um, so, uh, Ken Liu himself is very good. I'm just not the hugest fan of some of his work, but, uh, I know where you ranked this one. So I want to, um... Uh, hear what you thought of this. Yeah, I, I had it. I had it at number eight. Um, and you know, the, I guess maybe it was a title. I, like I mentioned to you as I texted you earlier, how could something with a short story with the word Sith in the title, how could it be so boring? Um, and it's just, uh, you know, because you hear the word Sith, the Sith of data work, and I'm going, okay, what is? And on one hand, you have Sith, which which evokes all sort of, uh, you know. Um, uh, you know, thoughts and, and, and fantasies about what might be, and then on the other hand, you have data work, which is inherently boring. So maybe I should have maybe I should have expected that it was going to be about paper pushing. It was interesting. The whole concept is interesting to think about the guy who says in the movie as as, as the escape pod is jettisoned and it leaves the ship, and it's you know three PO and R two D two are in it and they're hurtling towards Tatooine and they have the Death Star plans and. The guy who, as you said, says, hold your fire, and you're going, okay, why are we, you know, are we, why are we not, you know, just going to blast this out of the sky? And then later, it's so quick that he realizes, you know what, they searched the entire ship, and they didn't find the plans. Uh, what if they were aboard that escape pod, and I'm the one who ordered not, you know, not, because they don't necessarily need them back. They just need them not to fall into the hands, right, of, of, of the rebellion. And if they blow them out of the sky and destroy them, it's as good as getting them back, right? So that's all they had to do was blow that escape pod up, and then the story's over, and we've got no movies, right? And mm-hmm. it's done yeah. at that point. So, um, yeah, so it was funny to see him, to watch him try to cover his own rear end, as you said, for the rest, <laughs> of, the, for the rest of that story. Uh, was kind of, it was kind of humorous. It was, I, I don't know, I guess, you know, data work didn't, didn't quite... Didn't quite get it, get it for me, but yeah, there, there, it, it is a funny concept. Yeah, um, and I'll tell you, if you had trouble with that one, there are other short stories later in the book that I know yeah. you're gonna have more trouble with, um, uh, just because this is not the most wacky one. Um, oh. As as a preview, the most wacky short story is the last one. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so we'll we'll get there, uh, but. Uh, yeah, it is enjoyable. Um, the, the, the title is funny cause you think Sith and it's a, it's a double play on words. Uh, I'll bleep myself here. It's a double play on words because it's Sith as in like a master, like he's really good at data work. Um, but also because it's a play on the, the word, the shit of data work. And so that's why, yeah. Um, yeah. so gotcha. Gotcha. I'll remember where I said that so that I can bleep it properly, but, uh, <laughs> But anyway, so that was um, that. That's the reason that it uh, it was called that. But uh, the next story is called "Stories in the Sand." It is by um, uh, Kevin or sorry Griffin McElroy, who 
is a podcaster and does voice acting for small projects, but he's most known for helping found the video game website Polygon, um, which I don't use, but is I've, I've heard of, um, which is really cool. Um, this is a story of a Jawa named Jot who dreams of space travel, and he sees uh, R2's memories and of the Skywalker saga, and then uh, he desires to go back into space, and he immediately puts it back in R2's memory so that he can find his, uh, so that R2 can find his way back, and he kind of breaks protocol with the uh, the Jawas. So, uh, where did you rank this, Mike? And what did you think of this one? I liked it when I, as I was reading it again. It's, it's what is it, the fourth one sequentially? I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. Um, so as I read it, I thought, okay, this one's good. I, I really like this one. I kind of had it up pretty high. And as I read some that were later on toward the end, they kind of pushed it down the list a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still really good. I ended up ranking it at number four mm-hmm. out of these eight for me. Yeah. Um, the, the story from the perspective of a Jawa, who have always been kind of these little cute creatures, although they're apparently um, they don't smell the greatest, and they're they're you know they're often described as disgusting little creatures. Mm-hmm. They're the traders who, who you know trundle around the, the, the sands of Tatooine in these giant sand crawlers. And um, you know, it, I'll tell you what was interesting was to um, this particular Jawa Jot had discovered or uncovered, unearthed some other droid in the past, and it had gotten his hands on a hollow projector that allows him now to take the memory cores of other droids, put it into the hollow projector, and see basically what they've seen over the course of their existence. So, as you said, he gets R2's memory core and is able to go back. And I thought it was so cool. That's what I, that's what I liked about this one the most, is he sees, when he's, when he's looking through, essentially looking through R2's eyes as he looks at R2's memory core, um, he sees um, when, when they left... Naboo in episode one mm-hmm. uh, in, in Phantom Menace they left Naboo and R2's on the wing of the Naboo cruiser and he's rep- doing some repair work out there and other droids are getting blown off into, into space yeah. they're trying to they're running the blockade you know they're running the the Nemoidian, the Trade Federation blockade he sees that then he sees um, in episode from episode two he sees uh, R2 rolling through the droid factory on Geonosis um, and he sees the wedding ceremony between Anakin and Padme that R2 is president and he sees all these other things that R2 is kind of so it's almost like it's told from the perspective of this little Jawa but it's also we're seeing it through the perspective of R2 over the years um, and then I, it never occurred to me how fortuitous that was that oh, that's another thing that's so great about this whole book and the, all of these stories is all of the minor minor parts uh, well, I, I guess you'd say minor characters that played major roles in, in the in the in the outcome of events in the course of events that we never even really thought about. And we're going to get to one in a minute. R five D four. That's one of my favorites. Uh, the red one. We're going to talk about him in a minute. But this little Jawa here, who it was, as you said, it was protocol for the Jawas when they were about to when they scavenged some. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? When they when they pulled something out of the sand and they were getting ready to clean it up and resell it, it was common practice or protocol to completely wipe its memory and. Had he done that with R2 and he wipes his memory, then again, um, that changes the whole story. So the fact that he broke protocol and just stuck the memory core back in there, um, he played his small, tiny little role that was very important that nobody ever knew about uh, in, 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 the, in the events that basically changed the galaxy. So I thought that was, I thought that was pretty cool. I liked this one. It, it ended up at number four for me. Nice. I have it at number seven out of eight, so it's not... 
you know, it's not great. It's, it's, this is one of those that they needed to pad the time. And so I think that they just, it's, this is more just for padding the, to, to get to 40, but it's still fun. It's still enjoyable. I, it's really sweet. It answers a question that was raised in Mandalorian. Up until now, we've only seen Jawas on Tatooine and in Mandalorian, we see Jawas on, um, uh, some other planet. And you think, wait a second, are Jawas native to different planets or do they have space travel? And this shows that even though they're very primitive, they have, you know, they, they have certain belief systems and they're not very technologically advanced. They're scouring the desert. They still have the ability to comprehend space travel and understand it and desire to one day utilize technology to go there. So I like that aspect of it. Um, I also really liked getting to see snapshots of the original trilogy. Um, and I feel like it would be cool. I would love an entire book from R2-D2's perspective as he's thinking about things because R2 is the only character to see and remember everything from the whole series. Like, R2 spends three years with Luke and never tells him that that, uh, Darth Vader is his father. And R2 definitely knows. So that's like, did did R2 was, did Obi-Wan pull R2 aside and say, hey, don't don't say anything about uh about Anakin. Like I'm really curious about that now. Um yeah. uh and so it just reminds you of of R2's memory and stuff. Uh I also it really reminded me I don't know if Planet of the Apes is the right analogy, but the concept of like a primitive group or species finding like human technology and then just watching the same thing over and over because that's all they have and dreaming of getting to do the, whatever's in that technology. Um, I, I really liked that aspect of it. It was very tropey. Um, so yeah, it was a fun, it was a fun, uh, story. Uh, Jawas aren't my, Hey, I, I want to read that. Um, the next, the next story was the most confusing of all the stories to me. Um, I don't know if it was confusing for you. Um, uh, and that is the story of Ririn or Ryrin. I'm going to say Ririn because that makes more sense to me. Um, uh, it's by Saba Tahir, who has not written any other Star Wars projects, but she has written the Ember in the Ashes fantasy series. And I would say she's a rising star in fantasy. If you ask any booktubers or people who are involved in fantasy literature, they'll know who she is. Um, uh, and we sell those at our Barnes, her, some of her books at our Barnes and Noble, but, um, uh, so she's a, a rising star and this is about, uh, a Tuscan Raider tasked with stealing something from the Jawas. Um, by the end of the story, it's assumed that it's a Kyber crystal, which I thought was really cool. Um, uh, and it was, she was present watching the Jawa Uncle Owen negotiation. Um, uh, this story for me, I felt it personally to be quite boring. I didn't feel much tension there. And if this was a minor plot, this seemed like it was the C or D plot in like a full length novel, but it didn't have the full range of what is in a normal book to make me feel connected to her at all. Um, this was more of a character based one. And so I just didn't feel like they took enough time to, to develop her character. Um, uh, and I was also confused because 
she was, she had, a, they talked about early on in the story, having a Gatterfi stick and also having, um, uh, a, uh, I forgot what it's called, a Bantha, but they never call her until the end of the story. They never call her a Tuscan Raider. And I'm like, wait a second. That's a bit like, like, so I was like, is this, is this a human or like, is this a human wearing a Tuscan's clothes? And then they talk about her friends who have Tuscan sounding names, but hers could sound like a human name. So anyway, it just kind of confused me. I did not, this is the one story in the whole group that I was just, I just didn't enjoy reading it. Um, but you know, that's okay. What, what did you, the Kyber crystal was the most interesting revelation to me. What did you think about this story? Oh, by far, I agree with you about the Kyber crystal. Yeah, that was definitely, um, what made it, what made it somewhat interesting. I ranked it number seven for me of these eight that we read. It was a bit confusing. Um, a lot of these, from a certain point of view, short stories answer questions. I thought this one raised a few more questions. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because it just didn't, rather than doing what a lot of the other stories do and sort of tying up some things and, you know, connecting them, this one sort of was like, wait, what? Uh, And then we never really get to know, like, I I don't know, like, who is she stealing the kyber crystal for? And, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, what is, in in, in the end, she finds herself thinking that maybe she's going to keep it and hang on to it because she feels this attachment to it. So it was, yeah, it was like, okay, we need, I need a little more than, and obviously it's a short story. That's the point. There's, there is no more. So um, it was, I don't know, I have, a hard t- I have a little bit of a harder time fitting this one in and connecting it to the overall um, to the overall story, I guess, than I did some of the others. Mm-hmm. Um, it is interesting. Now, when I, when I watch The New Hope again, and I watch the scene where this transaction is taking place between Uncle Owen and Luke and the Jawas, I'm going to be looking in the background to see if I can spot a Tuscan Raider sneaking around and sneaking into the sand. <laughs> Well, we know both George Lucas and Disney love changing A New Hope, so um, uh, that's entirely possible. So uh, I think we should move on to The Red One, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed this one. This, I, it's not my favorite, but I, I thoroughly, it is, it is a funny and fun story. Um, uh, it is called The Red One. It is written by Ray Carson, who... Uh, also wrote for the Canto Bite novella anthology. Um, she wrote a novella there. She also wrote Most Wanted and is probably most known to Star Wars fans now for writing the Rise of Skywalker novelization, which we've both read, we both liked, and we both reviewed on this very here podcast. See, I beat you to it this time, Mike. I got I get to plug this time. Uh, she yeah. wrote uh, Rise of Skywalker novelization and also this short story. This was her introduction. We had never seen a Ray Carson story until this point. So this is a pretty good introduction from her. Uh, it's about the story of R5-D4, a droid who just wants an owner to escape the Sandcrawler, who meets R2 and sacrifices his own freedom so that R2 can escape to the Rebellion. Um, and we know that R5 eventually winds up in the most Eisley Cantina in The Mandalorian, um, which I think is really cool. Uh, uh, side note, have you watched The Mandalorian documentary? No, I have not yet. You really need to, because in the last episode, they talk about how 
they were trying to figure out things to fill the cantina with. And Dave Filoni said, hey, this character, he blew his uh, motivator. He won't get off planet, most likely. So let's put him in the cantina. And he checked with the story group and it worked out. And so they just covered up uh, them so that the droid looked um, just like he did in A New Hope. And so you see him in the corner coming across the screen uh, in uh, The Mandalorian, which is really cool. But I really enjoyed this because it essentially turned R5-D4 into a, like, a, like a dog, like a pet and a pet that just really wants an owner. And it's just like, it keeps like, it's kind of like the Jawas going to the different people's homes. Uh, it's kind of like a, a dog getting to see someone from the pound and it's like, Oh, please pick me, please pick me. And then people are like, mm, I don't, I don't want a dog with that much work. I'm going to go with this dog or mm, that's a small dog. I need a nice, strong, big dog to pull the sled or something. And so I like that. He, he felt like a, a dog, which I, I found funny. Uh, and just the whole sweet R2 just complaining, you're not complaining, but like pleading, begging with him, please, I need to save the galaxy. And even though R5 doesn't contribute to blowing up a Death Star or carrying any plans or anything, he does um, uh, sacrifice himself, which I really liked. I put it as my number three. I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed it. So where did you put it, Mike, and what were your thoughts? Yeah, I got it actually as number two. I, I liked it a lot as well. Um, and the line in there, it was almost almost a little too on the nose, but I still liked it, where R- R2-D2 says, help me, R5-D4, you're my only hope. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was, um, yeah, that was almost a little too much, but it was but not quite. But, yeah, just the... Um, the act of self, uh, you know, self-sacrifice here by a droid. And us, like most Star Wars fans, have always had a little bit of a soft spot for droids anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and now, you you know, to, to kind of get acquainted with another one in R5-D4, and he is, you know, he's old, he's, um, you know, he's not the latest technology by any stretch. He's been in this sand crawler for four years. This whole thing had kind of had a... Uh, how much is that doggy in the window kind of feel mm-hmm. to it, kind of a vibe to it. You know, like you said, he's like a pet just looking to get adopted and taken home to, you know, somebody who'll take care of him. And he finally thinks he's going to get that when Uncle Owen says, um, yeah, that red one, we'll take the red one. And he's like, oh, wow. And by this point, of course, R2's already told him. Uh, it, it was hilarious, too, that R5-D4 woke up in the middle of the night and R2-D2 was basically sabotaging him. Yeah. You know, that was... Uh, that was funny, and he's like, "Hey, what are you doing?" And Archie's like, "Well, you know, I, you know, I, I, I could lie to you, but you know, yeah, I'm." I'm he, said, Here's, he said, "Here's the deal. I've got to get off. I've got to get out of the sand crawler. I've got to get, you know, to an owner because the galaxy's at stake." And R5D4, I don't know if droids are, have the capability of being, you know, skeptical. I think he was skeptical at first, but then there's that moment where he finds that he actually believes everything that R2 told him, and that he, he understands it is important that R2 get um, bought and get out of the sand crawler and get, you know, taken uh, so he can get back into the rebellion and find Obi-Wan and save the galaxy. And, and it's so cool. Um, you know how we found out in Rogue One that that design flaw in the Death Star was actually intentional by the designer and the architect of the Death Star? Mm-hmm. Um, how that suddenly makes sense? Yeah. It's kind of similar on a much smaller scale here. We find out that when R5-D4 rolls out and is following 3PO and Luke and going to go with Owen back to the Lars homestead and basically just blows his top and steam starts billowing out and he just kind of, his motivator just goes bad right there on the spot. 
we find out in this short story that that was not a malfunction. It was an act of, it was a willful act of self-sacrifice of him doing that to himself so that they would have to put him back and take R2 instead. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the coolest thing. I thought that was the coolest thing. And it was, I was happy to find out that, you know, because the stormtroopers then assault the Sandcrawler, kill the Jawas, you know, find out where they've sold the droids so they, they can then track them down. That's what leads them to uh, to the Lars homestead. But it, it was very, um, it would have been too tragic if, if R5-D4 had been destroyed, you know, in the stormtroopers cleansing of the sand crawler so i was happy to know that he at least escaped that and he trundles off into the desert um and in search of you know a a home and and a brighter future i thought it was um i thought it was all around really good like i said i ranked it number two yeah it's a really good story also what you were just talking about reminds me of how um uh it makes you think that if r5 is um uh you know he if he's not picked it's kind of like you know you you hear the um, the droids talking, and an Arf and and R R two is like yelling at him. In the movie, you kind of get that he's tr- you think he's trying to talk to um, C three PO, but it, right. he's now talking to uh, R five, which is interesting. It's also interesting that uh, we actually get dialogue for R two because in every Star Wars project out there, just about. They do it kind of like a um, uh, Lassie, and uh, you know, it's R two bleeps, and then he says, "What was that boy?" Um, uh, Timmy fell down a well, or you have the plants, the Death Star, but like you never get a word for word. This is what R two's saying, and so normally, if, if you hear word for word, he's usually very vulgar because it's like a like a parody of R two D two, but in this case, he's very sweet. He's very innocent, and I really liked that interpretation of him uh, which was good in the in the eu uh r5 was actually like a jedi kind of a droid that was a jedi it was really bizarre and it did not make sense so i'm glad that they fixed it for the canon but this next the next two short stories are just interesting but the next one in particular is called rights it is written by john jackson miller who also wrote a New Dawn, Lost Tribe of the Sith, Knight Errant, a novella for Canto Bite, known as The Ride. He wrote the Knights of the Old Republic comics. And, of course, he wrote Kenobi, which is uh, the Scribe Award-winning book uh, from 2013 in the EU. And this features uh, a character named Ayark, who readers of Kenobi will remember as being the main uh, antagonist in that book. Um, uh, it also features t- the Tuscans who raid Luke, uh, and they attack a baby crate dragon, which, by the way, I just want to see. We have Baby Yoda, now I need to see a baby crate dragon. Um, right. uh, and they're just hoping to kill more, and they're hoping to be able to kill the, the, the mother. I loved this short story because not only does it add... Um, uh, impact to this universe, but it brings in a character from the EU into canon. And John X. Miller himself has said, the entire Kenobi book is not canon. That's why he was very particular on saying that a Yark knew and had interacted with Obi-Wan, but didn't know him well because he didn't want it to seem like he was just bringing everything over from that book. But it currently works now that unless they change anything, Kenobi kind of fits. And, uh, 
I really liked that uh, that that he brought that character in, uh, and it just it, this felt almost like kind of like an epilogue. It's kind of like you know how um, Catalyst really felt like a prologue for Rogue One. Well, yeah. this feels like this short story was an epilogue for um, uh, for Kenobi. So I ranked it as number two. I loved it. I I. I have yet to read something by John Jackson Miller that I say that's bad, and I've read a lot of his work. So, and usually I say it's quite good or excellent or amazing or in Kenobi's case, spectacular. So I quite enjoyed this. This is my number two. Uh, what did you think of this one, Mike? And tell me why you're wrong. <laughs> tell me, I uh, I liked it. I ranked it as number five. Um, on, on my list. By the way, yeah, Kenobi and fittingly Master and, and Apprentice, which we're going to reference in just a minute um, when we talk about the final short story in this sequence of the first eight, but those two are probably my favorite Star Wars novels. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, like you, I'm a big, no, not as, not to the level that you are, but like you, I am a big fan of John Jackson Miller. Um, it was cool to get reacquainted with a Yark, who, as you said, was the primary. Um, antagonist, the Tuscan Raider leader from from the book Kenobi. And as far as the timeline goes, you know, Kenobi takes place basically right after Obi-Wan arrives on Tatooine and drops off the little baby infant Luke at the Lars homestead. So this is going to be, you know, this short story is essentially written, you know, the events of A New Hope are taking place. So we're talking about maybe 17, 18 years after that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the time, the timeline there, which it always helps me to sort of organize things on the on the timeline, but um, it was interesting uh, to to see a Yark's description. It's, well, first of all, to know that she's still in charge, and apparently the, the Tuscan Raiders are now, compared to where they were in, in the Kenobi story, they are. It kind of seems like they're thriving again. Like mm-hmm. they are, you know, under her leadership, they have sort of made a little bit of a comeback. I guess you'd say. Yeah. Um, she's got three. She's got three young warriors with her as they go. Um, and again, it, it very much ties it together because we all remember the scene in A New Hope where Luke goes out with Repio in search of R2 and sees the Banthas and says, hey, there's got to be sand people here and let's go have a look. And he's all curious and interested. And then, of course, one pops up right in front of him and it's terrifying and he ends up getting knocked unconscious. And, uh, and then Obi-Wan, you know, the wizard comes along and impersonates a great dragon and scares them all off. And it, that, that was, it was neat to get a different perspective on those, on that sequence of events. Mm-hmm. Uh, from this, but to see the three younger Tuscan uh, warriors, the, the the Tuscan Raiders, and then to see them kind of under the leadership there of of a Yark was also um, was also pretty cool. It was very um, again anything that connected to Kenobi, you know, I'm, I'm all for it because that book was great. It was, like it, you said, it, was it, it it reminded me of in Finding Nemo when the kids are like, I want to go touch the butt, and uh, and in the uh, what's his name, Marlin. Is just like no 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 don't do it just trust me and they're like but 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 I want to and he's like don't do it and then they do it and then it causes problems she's like don't go in this area this is where the crazy guy is he's he's the magic wizard thing and then they're like I'm gonna go mess with him I'm gonna go search him out and she's just and then they all get scared and they run away and she's just face palming like imbeciles uh, I just. It, Again, it's it's not a laugh out loud, but it's just kind of a a silent humor. Uh, uh, so I, I enjoyed that aspect. Also interesting, this 
added to the lore of the Tuscans that it's like you're not a real adult until you've killed a crate dragon and they're like we killed one and she's like yeah baby one and he's like but it still counts and she's like okay you're an adult but you're like a young adult I'm not I'm not I'm not putting you on the same pedestal as me um uh, that was that was that was pretty funny um uh, and then I just loved how they said they had the comment that like twins always cause trouble and I'm like, yeah, that happens in Star Wars. In the uh, in the EU, twins. There, there's so much about twins, just because you not only have Luke and Leia, but you have Jason and Jaina and other things. And so that's always been a thing in Star Wars, having to do with twins. Um, but let's move on to the final short story called Master and Apprentice, written by Claudia Gray, who wrote Lost Stars. Leia, Princess of Alderaan, Bloodline, and Master and Apprentice, the novel. Um, uh, so I personally, this is my favorite in the group, but I will let you start out this discussion, Mike. All right, I'll be glad to. I liked it too. I liked it a lot. I had it ranked as number three uh, out of the eight that we read this for this particular episode. But um, yeah, when I read the title, I thought, okay, hmm. What you know, I was because I was thinking the whole the whole premise and the whole concept is sort of events that we've seen in the New Hope. We're seeing them from a different perspective, from like some sort of minor character. So I'm like, okay, what? And this is different because we see it from the perspective of Qui Gon, who is by no means a minor character. He's just a character that didn't get a lot of screen time, obviously, because you know, he was killed at the end of Episode One, and we we, we didn't really get to see him. But it, we we also know from speaking of the book Kenobi, we know from the book Kenobi that Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan would commune. You know, Obi-Wan would communicate through the Force to Qui-Gon and vice versa. Um, while Obi-Wan was was in the desert and alone and watching over Luke on Tatooine. And then now um, we see that it's, it's that one little scene where after Obi-Wan has, um, well, he's made his, he's tried to convince Luke to come with him. You know, you must come, you must learn the ways of the Force if you're to come with me to Alderaan. And Luke says, I'm not going yet. I've got to go home. I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm in for it as it is. So they're headed back. He's going to take him. Luke's going to take Obi-Wan wherever he's going to take him. Um, and then he's going to sort of wash his hands of that business and be done with it. And they discover the sand crawler that has been, you know, shot up and destroyed by stormtroopers. And Luke realizes, uh-oh, they probably traced these droids to whoever they sold them to. And then he races off to go see what's happened to, to Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. And it's while he's gone, it's Obi-Wan communicating. It's Qui-Gon basically appearing in in corporeal form, physical form almost, you know, and communicating there with Obi-Wan, and they have a conversation um, about Luke's future and about um, just about a lot of different things there. And it was really cool just to see the two of them, you know, kind of back together. And it's, it's really, you know, at this point in my mind, I'm picturing, you know, Alec Guinness Obi-Wan, right? Because he's in A New Hope. And this is, this is older Obi-Wan, and it's so interesting to hear Qui-Gon still refer to him as my Padawan to think about Obi-Wan Alec Guinness, old Obi-Wan, as having, as having been a Padawan, of course, which he was. and um, So the conversation that they have is really, really cool, uh, you know, between the two of them. And, um, yeah, I, I, I like it a lot. You, I think you liked it even even more. Tell me what you love the most about it. Well, I just really like that we learned a lot about the Force in this uh, short story. We learned a lot about uh, the Force ghosts uh, in the Clone Wars they established that Qui-Gon had only gotten to the point where he could project his voice. He couldn't project his physical self. And so I was always under the assumption that 
he would never be advanced beyond that kind of like up. He's kind of stuck this way. He'll never fully reach physical form. But in this book, it's like, nope, he's got physical form. He's had it for a while. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, hmm, that doesn't, Claudia Gray doesn't strike me as someone who watches the Clone Wars. So maybe she didn't know. But at the same time, I'm like, no, maybe it's just a, over time you learn. And if you're one with the force, you learn its secrets. And so he eventually learns how to, it just takes him longer or something. So I, I, I this time I, I felt the first time I read this, I was a little bit more apprehensive about that concept, but I love the image of Qui-Gon talking to Obi-Wan because adding more Liam Neeson is just awesome. And I really enjoyed how they still have the father-son dynamic, even though Obi-Wan's the same age that Qui-Gon was when he died, but Qui-Gon has returned. In It's like Qui-Gon died when he was 50 or something, but Qui-Gon returned years later when he's 50 and Obi-Wan's 50. So yeah. even though they're father-son, it's kind of like in, um, it's kind of the reverse of, uh, uh, Endgame where Tony Stark gets to meet his father, but he's older than his father. Uh, it's kind of like that. And, uh, I, I just really like getting to see that again. And, um, uh, there's, there's a line in here that just made me go, oh, and that was the, uh, when Obi-Wan says, or when, when, when Qui-Gon says, we shall meet again soon, my Padawan. Obi-Wan says, I will never hesitate to call upon you. That's not the kind of meeting Qui-Gon means, but there's no point in saying so. The truth will unfold itself in time. It always does. And I was just like, wow, that fits a punch. And I'm like, so, that that's a sweet line. It's so emotionally charged, but it raises so many questions. Does That means that Qui-Gon knows the future. Does that mean he can see further in the future? Does that mean he can interfere? For instance, he knows what's going to happen. He knows that after the Death Star's destruction, that that um, Kylo Ren is going to turn evil, that the new empire is going to, the First Order is going to reign. Can he not say, hey, Luke, by the way, you might want to do this and this and this, you know, kind of kind of interfere with the the timeline because he i don't know i maybe there's a law maybe there's like a force ghost tribunal that says you like the first rule of force ghosts is one does not talk about the timeline or something i like i really don't like that raises a lot of interesting short stories but it also you'll probably understand this uh reference more than anyone in harry potter right before Harry is going to face off with Voldemort and he's, uh, he uses the, um, Oh, I forgot what it's called. It's like the soul, the resurrection stone. And he sees all of his dead family and he's talking with them and he's like, will it hurt? And they say, uh, like falling asleep. And, and this, like, it's kind of like, they're kind of, uh, comforting him as he goes up to, to face his death. And that's how I felt with Qui-Gon Almost like I'm. I want another short story of him talking with Obi Wan and Obi Wan being like, "Oh dear, there's Vader. I need to go fight him." And Qui Gon says, "This is the end, my friend," or something. And oh, this this just made me think of that. And so this just this one had the most emotion of all the stories for me, but also had the biggest impact of we learned so much about how the Force works. Um, and so yeah. that's why I ranked it as my number one. 
Um, I got you. And, I, and there are, that was the line you quoted in that the little exchange. And I even love the final line where he says, um, uh, let's see, he says, as Obi-Wan will soon learn, this is Qui-Gon, you know, kind of speaking to himself. He says, as Obi-Wan will soon learn, the most beautiful form of mastery is the art of letting go. Oh, yeah. Perfectly mm. like that, perfectly in word form, describes what we see in A New Hope when Obi-Wan uh, allows Vader to, to kill him and becomes one with the Force. I mean, that's the art of letting go. And, and of course, Obi-Wan learned it, you know. And, um, yeah, it's kind of like it's, it's, it's that uh, strange dynamic of two people having a conversation one of them knows that the other one has very little time left to live, and the one who has little time left to live is not yet quite aware of it. And it's just sort of a very interesting dynamic there. But also in that story, one of my, one of the things I liked about it, Qui-Gon expresses great admiration for what you know, Obi-Wan kind of feels like he's been sitting on the sideline for 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, I've just been waiting. I've been a shadow for 17 years waiting to become a Jedi Knight again. And Qui-Gon expresses great admiration that what Obi-Wan has done has been a tremendous victory in and of itself. He has, he has stayed true to his to his path and stayed pure to the path despite everything that has happened in the galaxy and everything that's going on around him. He has, he has won a victory in and of itself just by, by you know, continuing steadfastly to carry out his duty. Um, and, and I think even Obi-Wan didn't even realize maybe that that was something that he had done that was, that was admirable. But Qui-Gon is, it really expressed his admiration for that. I thought that was cool. Yeah, and it's just, um, uh, it, it, it felt, it, the, this short story, when, when they were asked, obviously, Claudia Gray, her favorite character in Star Wars, other than Leia, is Qui-Gon. So she yeah. said, obviously, I want to write this. And this was almost like a, um, kind of like a, a tryout. Okay, write this short story. And then if you do well, we'll get, we can write an entire novel of the same title. And uh, which, which worked out well. Um, uh, and there are two camps um, of thought in Star Wars on, on one issue. There is the Tim Zahn or Timothy Zahn camp and the John Jackson Miller camp. And they're the two most vocal on their different camps. And so that's why we call it that. The Timothy Zahn camp believes that after Obi-Wan gave um, uh, uh, Luke to Beru and Owen, he went off and made a menace of himself and kind of did different things to help the rebellion and did different things to uh, throw Vader off the scent of, uh, of, of, the, uh, of, of, of Luke. And then uh, came back eventually when Luke was coming of age. Then there's the John Jackson Miller camp, which says, no, Kenobi did not leave the planet once. He stayed right in his hut and just sat there meditating for 17, 18 years, waiting for Luke to become ready. And he stayed that whole time, you know, uh, prepping and uh, the whole time watching over Luke uh, because that's his task. And this story seems to vindicate the John Jackson Miller camp because he says, "I haven't been uh, Obi Wan. I haven't been Obi Wan for so long. I've been Ben the whole time." And so that's why I think that this gives more credence to that theory. And I personally subscribe to the John Jackson Miller theory, one, just because I love Kenobi so much and it just works so perfectly, but two, because it makes that one makes more logical sense to me 
um, uh, from what we've seen in the movies, Obi-Wan seems like he hasn't done anything for a long time. Uh, so that's what, what, which camp would you fit under if, if you had to say one? Yeah, I'm in the Miller camp too. Uh, no doubt about it. I think that, um, I think that's the more likely scenario that, that Obi-Wan, um, you know, committed himself to staying there on Tatooine and being kind of that silent guardian and watching over Luke, um, and, and, and not, not leaving the planet, and again, because you did get that, um, I did get that sense from, from Obi-Wan in A New Hope, mm-hmm. that he had kind of been, he had been there, you know, for, for a while, and um, had kind of almost forgotten what it was like even to be Obi-Wan when he reacted and said, Obi-Wan, that's not, that's a name I've not heard for a long time, mm-hmm. it just kind of seems like he had put that life almost to the side for a while, so yeah, yeah I would think, based on that and based on this story, yeah, I'm in the Miller camp. Now, the thing is that with the story in the Miller camp, that would make for a very boring TV show. So it's entirely possible that they're going to change things up and have him go gallivanting across the galaxy and then return in the Kenobi show, depending on where they set it, which is fine. Um, uh, it's not like they have to say, I was. it's not like they've said now or ever, I spent every single second on this planet or something like that. So there's, there's room for them to work. And obviously I'm probably going to enjoy whatever they do in the new Kenobi show. But if they were to make it more like the novel and have references to the Oasis and Dinar's claim, I would not mind that either, but that's a story for a different day. Um, so overall, I'll run through my rankings. Number one, master and apprentice. Number two, rights. Number three, red one. Number four, The Sith of Data Work. Number five, Ramus. Number six, The Bucket. Number seven, Stories in the Sand. Number eight, Rearin. What is your um, ranking, uh, Mike? I have number one, Ramus. Number two, The Red One. Uh, number three, Master and Apprentice. Number four, Stories in the Sand. Number five, Rites. Number six, The Bucket. Number seven, Rearin. Which now that I say it out loud, it sounds like we're saying rear end. <laughs> Number eight, Sith of Data. Uh, that's a solid list. Um, this was a very informative and good discussion. I, I, the next eight short stories, I think personally, are the weakest in the book overall okay. because they have to do with the cantina. But we will see. That's that's our that's our next book episode. Um, uh, I actually normally would pitch what our immediate next episode is, but I honestly have no clue because I haven't thought about it yet. I've been so busy with work and other stuff. So until next time, I'm Jonathan. I'm Mike. And thank you for listening to Two Sons of Tatooine. <laughs>